Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and trust me, folks, you are grateful that this is audio only today because I'm looking at my co-host and he looks literally like we have dragged um, something that the cat stood in and then coughed up and then swallowed and then coughed up again. Martin, how are you? All right, actually, Tony, I actually feel really good. I feel really good. You're, you're nearing, Martin, for people who aren't aware, started a Twitter thread on the saga of bogus self-employment in Ireland and how it worked. I think now coming up on 13 days ago, Martin, and it's yeah. it, it's yeah. ending it's ending its conclusion in the next little while. So 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 if you probably you might it might even be finished before this comes out possibly but check it's it out. It's my opus and it is my opus without a doubt it's my opus. Well we'll see where that goes. Um speaking of uh, people who do th- Twitter threads but these ones are actually must read, Martin, not, not, yeah. not, your, not, not yours. <laughs> we are re- delighted to be rejoined on the podcast by Professor Richard Murphy. Uh, Richard, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. How You might recall the first email I, I sent you said, uh, hello from the slightly less island to your west. Uh, and it seems now that if you were to listen to the, the powers that be, that the UK is trying to become less insane, how do you feel about the last sort of 24 hours, 36 hours? Less insane. I like that idea. Um, is it becoming less insane? I'm not sure. I'm sure we'll discuss why. Uh, according to financial markets, everything is now looking to be vastly better than it was before. Is that the test of success that we really want to use? But by their definition, the madness of Kwasi Kwarteng has been dispatched. Um, Jeremy Hunt has conducted a bloodless coup to become the de facto prime minister of the UK, according to everyone. Liz Truss is Pino, premier in name only. I always check before coming on to any broadcast at the moment, including this one, as to whether she is actually still in office, just in case something's happened in the previous half hour. And... We have a situation where, look, austerity is going to be unleashed on the on the UK. Taxes have gone up. Inflation is high. Wage uh, wage um, settlements are going to be low. Mortgages are going to skyrocket. Still, they won't be quite as bad as they were. I heard somebody happily talking on television last night, saying, "Well, mortgage rates in the UK may not be nine percent next year. They may only be seven to eight percent." As if wow. that's okay. when. Wow. For the last decade or more, for half the life of many mortgage life of many people who've got mortgages, the rate has been under 2%. You know, this is four times as high, potentially. Rents are going up. Fuel bills are astronomic. The cap has come off the energy support process. So a lot of people are going to pay more next year. Yeah, this is just disastrous. Is that becoming less insane or is that becoming more insane? You decide from my perspective and the perspective of the person in the street, the person on the Mile End Omnibus, as um, my mate Danny Blanchflower and I talk about, because that's the road out of the city of London heading east into the East End. Um, You know, that person on the Mile End Omnibus is going to think this is more insane. I've been on that Mile End Omnibus. I lived in the East End. Uh, The East End's an interesting place. I lived in Forest Gate. Right. There you go. So, and you know where Forest Gate is yourself. I lived there. So I know what you're talking about. I'm, you, I know the people you're talking about. How long are they going to take this, Richard, without actually rising up and <laughs> killing those who are doing it to them? 
you have the advantage of being able to see the face I pulled there, Martin, and the answer is I don't know. But I don't know how we are going to get through this without some form of unrest. I still can't see that. I mean, Hunt has done a classically good politician's job of selling out to the financial markets. It's the first time that's really been done in the UK since, well, you could say 1992 when we exited the exchange rate mechanism and had something called Black Wednesday, um, when interest rates actually hit 15%, the official Bank of England rate hit 15% for a few mad hours. Um the alternative I could give you is 1976, when Dennis Healy supposedly got a bailout from the IMF, which he didn't need. This is, you know, in that scale of disorder or order, whichever way you wish to look at it. Hunt has sold out to whatever they want. The Bank of England is driving the economy. We are seeing a an economy which is going to be driven onto the rocks for the sake of trying to kill inflation, which can't be killed by the Bank of England because it's generated outside the UK and everybody driven to the point where their, you know, their budgets won't balance. Um, yeah, you know, my wife and I just literally talked last night and said, well, they take off that energy cap and we're talking about paying over £400 a month on our energy bills when we're talking it was 100 quid a month. Uh, for this is combined electricity and gas only a few months ago. Um, and that's, you know, a big hole in your budget uh, for anyone. Um, and we're relatively well off, bluntly. I'm aware we can. A lot of people can't. I mean, I'm talking to people who just will not be able to make these payments. Not possible. Not on universal credit, on sorts of incomes of around, say, 30 grand a year. Paying either large mortgages in proportion to income if they're lucky, in the sense they've got on the housing ladder, or large rents if they haven't done that. And these bills, they just will not be able to pay for anything. It's not possible to have a good life in the UK anymore. And, but, but Richard, can I go... Back to the will of the markets, and this is yet it yet again because I, I thought when we spoke to you last, you had this brilliant phrase where you said we need a better song, we need a new song. It was mm. you know, and it, it it it's a it's it's a wonderful idea, but this idea then that we're still singing the old market song, and yet even in this scenario, and we know this from Ireland, we saw when the markets turned against us, what it meant for, for you know, the IMF showing up, we required the ECB, we, we needed a bailout and we lost a, a certain level of sovereignty. This may not be as, as clear cut as that, but it is very much that as well, isn't it? The international capital flexing its muscle and saying, we don't believe you're credible uh, and you need to come back in line. When you, when, and that is what has been, you know, been told like this, this, I, someone said it was a libertarian wet dream that uh, that that the um, quasi quartang pl plan was, but it, it certainly, it, it much like much of libertarianism, uh, it 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 literally when it hit reality, it got told get get back into your box and come back would come back to us with what we dictate, and you know as as an Irish person. We know very well what that feels like, you know. To, to, that's our loss. Am I? Am I? Am I off? Am I off uh, the mark here, or is that something that that maybe is going to have to be wrestled with? That this is what's happened here. I mean, it's clear that international markets didn't like what happened. I mean, we got the very clear message from the IMF 
um, right from the outset that this was wrong. People were obviously saying, but then I was saying, so I can't really disagree with this, that you can't have the Bank of England pursuing a policy of austerity and the government pursuing a policy of growth, which is what Truss was trying to do in opposition to what Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England was trying to do and expect you you not to start to do you know some pretty serious handbrake donut turns um, <laughs> and therefore have no clue where you're going. So that was seriously wrong. But actually, I'm not quite sure it's the international markets that have imposed this on the UK. Remember, the UK has its own currency. It's still, to some extent, a reserve currency. It's well traded. Over 30% of UK debt is owned by foreign institutions and governments, I'd stress, to facilitate mm-hmm. international trade with the UK. Were they really demanding this change, or was it the instruments of power within the Bank of England and within the banking community who were doing it? Remember, in the UK, There are two governments. There are two capital cities, effectively. And this is going back into deep history. You know, we're talking here 1066 and all that sort of rubbish. Um, Into darkest history, when William the Conqueror, the William the Bastard, um, as some might wish to call him, came over from um, Normandy and beat King Harold of England and then marched up to London, he made peace with the city of Westminster, and he asked the city of London for a loan to finance the payment to his soldiers who had just conquered the country, and the city of London gave him the money. Now, that's the fundamental conflict that goes on within the UK between the city of London and the city of Westminster. And I think what we're seeing here is a fight between democracy and a fight with the powers of finance. And I think this is much more sinister, much deeper than some sort something like, oh, the international financial markets have got us by the short and curlies and are going to do a bit of twisting until we come back into line again. That's not what this is. This is about who governs Britain and on whose behalf. And I see the great villain in this piece is not actually quasi Quartang and Trust. I mean, they're bonkers. Thank God, you know, their libertarian ideas have gone mad. I was on the BBC yesterday and I was meant to be up against Mark Littlewood, the director of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Tufton Street think tank par excellence. And I've been up against Mark. The, 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 the one that failed to to uh, sue um, James O'Brien, who you also yeah. have spoken to several times. Yes. Well, Mark and I have known each other for a long time. I call him Comrade Littlewood, which he doesn't like much. Um, and yeah. He didn't turn up. Um, he didn't want to do it. Um, and he knew for well that I had taunt him and tell him, you know, you failed. Go away. You don't have, deserve a place anymore. You, you, your credibility shattered because it is. But that's not the problem. I mean, their credibility shattered. But what we've got is, in a sense, double movement. This is almost Polanski. You know, this is the idea that Polanyi, uh, this is the idea that the right has failed. Bring on the right. And this is real double movement stuff because they failed with their version of right wing madness. So we bring on another form of right wing madness here. And that right wing madness is that of Andrew Bailey and the Bank of England, which is crush the people with austerity because they've been so audacious to ask for a pay rise at a time of inflation. That's the threat we're facing now. Can I just say I've spoken to you now a number of times and each time I spoke to you, you had a sense of humor about what was happening. It was sort of comedic. (laughs) Now I get from you that this just isn't funny anymore. Would I be right about that? 
Well, look, I always try to find some element to actually sustain me because you need to have something to keep you going. But I'm beginning to look, what really worries me. I'm not, I'm, I don't see much funny side to this anymore. I mean, there's no funniness left in the sense that I'm still battering, you know, Mark Littlewood or anything else. And yeah, Quartang and Trust are gone. It's only a matter of time in her case. And so we've beaten off that type of madness. But the madness that is left is real madness. It feels like the madness. I said it this morning on my blog. It feels like the madness of that World War One general, who, having you know, sent ten thousand troops to their deaths yesterday, thinks, "Let's try that again today." Yeah, we tried austerity from twenty ten to twenty fifteen or so. Mm-hmm. Let's have another go and see how well it works out this time. Having knowing for well it failed last time. Only but, this- but, but, but Richard, can I challenge you on that because it failed the general public but it actually helped set up this system where we've seen for the last 12 years since the global financial crash a wealth transfer system that's worked really eff- effectively from the bottom to the top yeah so sure when- i mean i don't dispute that in that sense of course it did work for them but then they're going to try and keep doing it and this time they're going to try and do more wealth transfer and my argument is, i mean let's be blunt i think the argument is that the uk is now being set up to suppress wages to protect the value of capital invested in land and to support the monetary finance system through the interest rate. Can you keep doing that? No, it's just not possible. There isn't the slack available. And what Hunt is doing at the same time is transferring his balance sheet stress, the government's balance sheet stress on debt, onto households who are going to be so crushed by debt that they're not going to pay. And we are setting ourselves up for the most God almighty recession depression, economic failure, call it what you will. This is a disaster in the making. No, there's no, there's no comedy left here, Martin. Sorry. I think you're right about the analogy to war. And I think you're right about that. And I think for me, I think the Battle of the Somme where they just piled the poor in to be slaughtered. And I think that's where you are. They're piling the poor in to be slaughtered. And the same people who benefited then will benefit now. And it's not the little people. And what we also hear at the same time is the Labour Party saying they're going to be the party of sound money. So they're going to try and do the same things. They're going to be fiscally prudent, which means austerity by any other name. So there we have Rachel Reeves saying that. We had Jeremy Hunt taunting her in the House of Commons yesterday saying, you've got to cut copy my cuts and I challenge you to do so, even though he's only 30 plus points behind in the opinion polls, he still somehow thinks he can set the agenda for the country, but she won't probably challenge it. Um, And I'm really despair of that. And then we see some left wingers on Twitter um, who are, you know, talking about, oh, we must polish off the fiscal rules to make sure that the debt is managed properly. Um, Look, Actually, what the hell we need to do right now is actually rethink everything from scratch. The UK cannot cancel the inflation we're suffering. It's a worldwide phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon in a sense. There is a shortage of gas in the world. There is a shortage of food in the world. There is a shortage of fertilizer in the world. We're not going to kill those real physical phenomena by increasing interest rates in the UK and crushing UK households into submission by forcing their mortgage rates up by mortgage costs up by over 500 pounds a month, which they will not be able to pay. So why are we trying to inflate price? Why are we trying to take on inflation by this absurd policy, which can't work? Why are we saying people shouldn't have 
have a pay rise to compensate them for the cost of inflation. Why aren't we saying, no, have a pay rise for the uh, cost of inflation, because that's the only way you're going to survive. That's what a good employer should do to make sure their people can come to work. And at the same time, what we should be saying is, how do we actually literally change the focus so we can literally make sure that people will survive in their homes? And there's a price we can control. The one price we can control in all of this well, apart from you know, train fares and various other things like that, but which are under government control. But the one price we can really control, which is going to make a difference, is the interest rate. And it is entirely up to the government to tell the Bank of England, no, you can't increase interest rates. And the power to do it exists. Jeremy Hunt stands again. I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on him a lot because he really is an idiot. He says, well, he's, a, he's, be- he's got he's got a track record of being, you know, he's undefeated in in, in terms of how, how often he's screwed up and failed upwards. <laughs> well, precisely. I mean, he has been pretty disastrous, particularly his period as health secretary. It was absolutely mm-hmm. diabolical and laid the foundations for the lack of preparation for COVID in the UK amongst his many great achievements. And the fact that we have hospitals literally falling apart and God knows what else. So this man is a born failure. But his failure here is to, is 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 are numerous already. First of all, he says that the UK won't be able to pay its debts. The only pe- people who make pounds in the UK with guaranteed value are the government, and all the UK government debt is denominated in pounds. Therefore, it can always pay its debt. So his first and number one claim that he had to protect the ability of the UK to pay its debts was completely wrong. It could do that. And then he says, I've got to keep the markets happy. I don't believe so. And then he says, well, I'm a caring conservative. And God, I'm actually going to quote um, Tony Blair on this. And that's a rare day when I do that. But, you know, the difference between conservatives and caring conservatives is they'll kick you when you're down. But the second lot will say, we're sorry. Um, and that's the most they'll do about it. I think it's a slight misquote, but it's something like that. He said it with his matchbox a long time ago. That's what a contrarian conservative is. I'm sorry that I hurt you, but I will nonetheless hurt you all the same. So we actually, and this is what I'm sort of spending my time thinking about, going right, to, right back to basics. How the hell can we change this? And I don't see how we can change this without I, something I, really I, fundamental. I have a curveball for you. And I'll throw the curveball at you. Rejoin the EU. They would fatten the sucking they, they, pig. They, Martin, they, they can't would. say no one in the UK right now is brave enough to say that out loud. But but just just hear me. Hear no, me no. Yeah, hear, I, hear I, me. Hear me out for a sec. OK, the EU would fatten the suckling pig. They would welcome the prodigal son home. There'd be no tariff. There'd be no payments. There'd be no punishments you've done that to yourselves you've done it already yeah you would be the lesson for everybody else yes leave the eu and see what happens to you you could go whole hog and join the euro and no could, no i definitely you could you could you could you could now there's a very viable solution now there has to be a price paid and there has to be a price paid and the price paid is the border pole in northern ireland and let the will of the people be done with grace and that's the solution for everybody look 
I, I wouldn't really argue with the solution. I'm not a fan of the euro. I'll never be a fan of the euro. I think there are strong reasons why the euro prices people out of work in too many states in Europe. And I think it's therefore a measure that can reinforce poverty. And that's why I don't like the euro. Um, it's not a political thing. I actually like people to be able to price themselves into labour. But the point I'd have is that I think, yeah, that is obviously the right course to go down. We are hearing Labour saying they're now going to talk to Europe about closer relationships. It won't be a rejoin movement overnight. I don't think that is politically feasible at the present point of time. There are too many who are still vehemently opposed. It would increase stresses. Some of those people frankly are a little bit ugly in their opinions and very um resolute that um europe is the enemy um we want to take them on a journey um as people would say on strictly come dancing um there's the humor that was it that was my humorous comment for the entire <laughs> you, podcast you, you um, i knew i'd find one eventually but we can start talking about going towards rejoining the single market, allowing free movement of goods and services, perhaps beginning to move towards that absolutely essential free movement of people, um, realigning with all sorts of things that we've obviously blown apart from you know, cooperation with other universities, a subject close to my heart, um, and all sorts of things. So yeah, look, we're going to have to go down there. We will eventually rejoin the EU. Will it happen in my lifetime? I've got every intention that it should. I'm 64. I'm planning to retire when I'm 83 and have a decent retirement after that. So look, come on, sometime in the next, let's say, 26 years or so, I'm pretty damn sure we'll be back in the European Union. But we'll be back in the single market a hell of a lot sooner than that. Do, do want, can, I, can I say up to both of you, though? Actually, Martin, the idea about the, the border poll being the price, that's that's actually kind of irrelevant right now. What's actually really relevant at the moment is we do know that Liz Truss had put in place this, you know, bill to deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that's going nowhere, Richard. From that's our, not going anywhere. No, that's that, not going anywhere. That, like, I mean, the DUP are just like, I'm sorry, lads, you're out on your own now. And, uh, you know, the... But, how, how but no, no, but, but it's not going but to But the happen, DUP probably. were in Tufton Street. Let's be blunt. They're about in the same place. And nobody's going to be listening to them for the very same reason. They're in the yeah. same sort of... But But also... The cost of Northern Ireland, when the UK is going to be absolutely hammered with austerity, sooner or later, the cost of supporting Northern Ireland is going to come into the bargain. Sooner or later. Look, the Northern Ireland supposedly has a cost. We don't know. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work about the costs of the various... <laughs> the United Kingdom is supposedly four countries. Clearly, Northern Ireland is not in some sense as a country. You and I would agree, I suspect, upon that one, but let's not dispute what it is. Scotland also clearly wants to be independent. And I spent last night making podcasts on Nicola Sturgeon's latest plans for that, which are not good enough because uh, they bow to the power of markets again. God, she should learn the lesson and not beginning to do that. And Wales is still also beginning to be quite angry about you know, the dependence on Westminster. So the countries that may be rejoining uh, the European Union may not be the United Kingdom. I think it's entirely possible that we can be looking at some form of United Ireland or a transition towards what could well be United Ireland, with Northern Ireland having potentially a European status before it rejoins Ireland. And I think there might be a transition process required there because I do think people need time to acclimatise the difference. Scotland is 
really, really on the cusp of where does it want to go at the moment. And obviously there's big disputes about how it can become independent. Wales is behind. But I think it's really possible that there will be actually four places on the agenda here. But that's that's sort of another issue. I'm more interested, I mean, and, and pragmatically, if we want to grow, have growth in the UK, that's the obvious way to do it. It's the only and obvious, most obvious thing to do is realign with Europe as fast as possible. And we could actually realign by Europe by just saying we are going to literally scrap all these, all this legislation which abandons European legislation and put it all back in place. All you all UK regulation will be EU regulation in the way that Norway does all EU regulation without having any say on the process. And and therefore be aligned with the single market and therefore remove all the trade barriers and so on. So it could do all of that straight away um, and move in that direction. Labour could say that's the direction of travel we're going in. Um, yeah, presuming that they now have such a massive majority in the polls they're going to get in. But the real thing we now need to be doing in the UK is thinking about really much more fundamental reform. And that is how to actually really crush the power of the city of London for good. And we've seen major problems. I mean, we're funding at the moment. If the bank, if the interest rate at the Bank of England goes to over five percent, which is what is forecast, we're going to be giving, literally giving the commercial banks fifty billion a year in interest from the UK central government, whilst imposing austerity on ordinary people because they hold about a trillion on deposit with the Bank of England, and that money was created by quantitative easing. In other words, they were just gifted it by the yeah. government as part of the process of injecting it into the real economy, and now we're going to be paying them fifty. 50 billion a year to hold a, a sort of a balance that makes no sense. How are we going to get rid of that? That's a big question. And How are we going to cut that cost? How are we going to remove this problem that almost floored the pension funds of this thing called repo? Yeah, You could solve that by literally letting large companies deposit money on account with the Bank of England overnight so that it was safe because they do these absurd transactions called repo mm. to prevent them from risk of commercial banks failing overnight. Well, if they think commercial banks will fail overnight, why the hell are we actually supporting them? Seventy percent of all business loans. We, 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 Richard, we had we had that exact scenario here. I mean, yeah. there's famously a, a whistleblower, Jonathan Sugarman, who um, had a, was was working for a bank in the IFSE, our uh, financial services yeah. center, and he walked into the into the central bank and he said. Our, our balance sheet is not what it should be. I'm the I'm supposed to sign off to say that we have this, you know, capital liquidity ratio. We don't. And the governor and the government at the time went, look, will you just go back to your desk and pretend you didn't tell us that? And a few weeks later, yeah. the, the yeah, banks yeah. ran dry. Well, know? I mean, I watched the BO, Bank of Ireland, AIB and everybody else running dry. And I know exactly where the IFSC is. Um, I could walk their blindfold if you really asked me to, I suspect. So I know exactly where you're talking about. Um, but the ideas haven't come forward again. You know, I said this better song to thing. I keep on th thinking about what that song is. And one of those songs is simply we have to actually remove the commercial sector from a lot of involvement in the financial services industry because it's making such a mess of it. And then having the temerity to say people must be punished for not supporting their views. No, nah, I don't buy that anymore. I, 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 on here. And the fight is that they've got to actually be basically knocked off their pedestals. I, I do see a solution, a, a historic solution. Actually, it's a, it's a, it's an older historic solution. And I think that it's not just for the UK. I think it, it should be global, globally. And it's 
debt relief. And it's not debt relief for banks and it's not debt relief for merchants. It's debt relief for people. And over thousands of years, whenever an emperor died or a king changed or whatever, has some big, huge event, debt relief took place. And people who were working to pay debt, those debts were gone. And, and that's what happened. And I think COVID was that in modern times. And I think it was that. And I think it has screwed up the financial system in favor of the very wealthy. And it was deliberate. There's no doubt about it. It's deliberate. But the way around it is global debt relief. Real debt relief in, in the developing world, debt relief in the developed world. But that, what we call working debt, that debt that the working man has to pay. And I think that we should look to history for those solutions. And that is actually a solution. Okay, you're talking about Jubilee in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yeah. And now, actually, there's a really interesting line in the Lord's Prayer, um, which, despite all their differences, all Christians seem to actually manage to hold in common. Um, and there is the line, forgive us our trespasses. Actually, if you read the original, it's forgive us our debts. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's not forgive us our sins or our trespasses. It's our debts. And there's a very good argument put forward by Michael Hudson, who's a fascinating economist. Yeah, yeah, very but, good. Um, and his argument is that that is actually what this whole mission of Jesus was. And if you know anything about it, go and read his first teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he came to declare um, relief for the poor. I'm not quoting him precisely. I think this is, is in Luke chapter four. I've studied this stuff in this context. Um, and, you know, he, he was declaring the relief of sins, the Magnificat, the song sung by Mary at the time of his birth was the rich shall be pulled down. The poor shall be raised. So this is exactly in the Christian tradition, but not the one that most like to remember or read. But we are in a position where we've got to think about how literally we reorganize finance now, because it is at the point where it could destroy us. And because it stops us doing sustainability as well. That's the issue here, Richard. Can we go to that? Okay, two things I want to say on this. We had Graziella David on, Dr. Graziella David, an economist and a social economic justice uh, campaigner from Brazil. She had been part of the Global Alliance for Tax Justice. And she spoke exactly what you guys have said in terms of what, what was preached about in the temple, about that forgiveness of debt and, you know, how debt is... We also know, you know, what is it, Martin, 16, 16% of just of, of the global population is in the part or in parts of Africa that are carrying 2% of global debt. Yep. If we wrote off 2% of global debt. We could literally change the entire outlook for these African communities, 16% of the world's population. But that goes back to that other thing. What does sustainability mean? And what does that other song play? What are the tunes, Richard? It's 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 back to that again. What 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 I saw you arguing about it this morning on Twitter. So I'm gonna draw you on that a little bit. What was I arguing about on Twitter this morning? No, you were asking the question about, you know, these are the opportunity to to build out of this. And when you talk about sustainability, you mean actual you know, creating jobs. It's sort of like Rory Heron, who's is also also of this parish, talks about a state construction company, and everybody thinks they're he's mad for years. They're saying he's mad. Now we find ourselves in Ireland, whereby private developers have said, 
we're not making enough money on on building apartments at the moment. We might stop. And we're going, wow, all of so you mean all these builders are available? Yeah. Let's yeah. hire them, hire them. Let, hire let's them. let's so so in that catastrophe, Richard, there is opportunity, no? Well, look, my idea around this is that and I I'm really I'll go back to that first world war general thing because eventually the first world war generals had to change their minds about how they were going to pursue that war and the english generals and by and large they were english um actually embraced two things one the airplane and the other the tank and they therefore broke through and finally had the 100 day last push it took over 4 years of slaughter for them to get there at some point, we've got to change the thinking, the mechanics of the process, that we aren't actually doing what neoliberalism said, which is running an economy to f- drive wealth upwards to a few. But we need to run a, an economy which actually brings together the ability of the many to work together. And how can we do that? Part of it is obviously dealing with this issue of debt. And the, there's either one or two ways to deal with that. One is either to make the debt basically totally affordable. And that's actually to keep interest rates incredibly low. And we know how to do that. We've done it and we could do it again through QE. But we would then need to look at the consequences of QE and how that impacts upon asset distribution and asset prices. We can certainly do that. We need to tame the power of um, banks. Um, And as far as I can see, banks are actually one of the enemies in this role. Uh, and the, they're the enemy because they are demanding that their interests be met for the benefit of a few who work in them. And we're all just giving them our money. Literally, we're giving it to them. We're putting it into the, you know, at the end of the month, we pay in our salary, whatever it might be. And what do we actually need? Something incredibly basic, which the state could supply really easily, which is a bank card account, a savings account, a credit card, a charge card, an overdraft. And if we need to borrow money to buy a car, we could perhaps get that on, you know, on tick from them as well. Now, the point is, that all of those things are really easy products to supply. Business in the UK has got this massive state support already. So why are we actually letting that run through commercial banks? We need to reorganise that and think about creating the equivalent of the German banks, which work in partnership, make long-term holdings, and even take investment stakes in those businesses that are worthwhile maintaining and developing. That's part of sustainability as well. And we need to think about, as well about how we reorganise the financial services industry, because quite clearly don't work. We keep on forcing people to buy more and more shares in the stock exchange, which is just a giant Ponzi scheme at some point. This idea that the FTSE 100 has got a value of around 7,000 on its index is just going to explode because it hasn't. The same as the idea that my house is worth 400,000 quid is probably going to explode because it probably isn't. Um, And it's going to come down because it's at a price which is unaffordable, which is where the jubilee effectively happens, by the way. We destroy the asset price and therefore have to write off the debt because it's unaffordable and can't be paid. It's going to be uncomfortable. But in all of this, what we've got to do is preserve the right of people to live in their homes, people to work, people to be able to actually carry on with their own lives. And that requires a government that is willing to say, I see the turmoil. I treat it as the old system. I let that old system begin to die. I build the new system out of it. Now, I haven't got all the answers to that yet. I don't pretend I have. But that's where my thinking's going. And we've got to do this virtually in real time because that crisis is on us now. And it's bigger and sooner than I anticipated. I'll be honest with you. I didn't think it was going to be this quick. I have to agree with you. 
And I think this is probably one of the most interesting chats we've had, Tony. I think you'll agree it's one of the most interesting chats we have. And I have been thinking a lot lately about the Romans and that the Romans could provide clean water, they could provide light, they could provide sewerage, and that in 2,000 years, how far have we come in that the governments, not just the UK, Ireland too, and right around the world, Mm cannot provide those basics. Richard, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been a really, really enjoyable chat. Thank you so much. I enjoy these conversations. I hope we have another one sometime. Absolutely. And and folks, again, just you have to follow Richard. You have to check out his blog. You have to read his stuff. I would put up there that, that this is probably we're blessed to get to talk to, to and I'm sorry to be so so um uh, over the top about it but it's great to have these conversations our audience absolutely love hearing from you and i think it's great to have the idea that we do there is hope there is hope in what we say even mm-hmm. when we're talking about the darkest of darkest of situations because we know behind those numbers people are suffering we know that people when you say you know mortgages can't be can't be paid that's it there's human cost to that and there's a, there's a stress there's a mental health impact there's a there's a family breakup there's all of those things behind it but there is a hope there is that what richard talks about all the time the other song and we have to we have to believe in that thank you again and listen folks we'll be back going to tell going to bring out a downer we're about to talk to a woman who's living in her car because she has been made made homeless and um the county council don't have appropriate housing for her And we're hoping that by putting a push on that we might get her into a mobile home soon. And that's the next conversation you're going to hear on on the Tardis Shack. Good luck. Thanks very much, folks. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on page.